Our second reading this morning is from John chapter 1. Hear the word of the Lord. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. This is the word of the Almighty God. Father God, we lift up all of these prayers uh, to you, and we 
lift them up in the name of Jesus, who taught us all to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Last Sunday, uh, David Hudnut, who uh, is the husband of Ginny Hudnut and the father of Carolyn Hudnut, uh, died. Um, and so there will be a, a memorial service for David this Wednesday um, up in Skipak. If you want details, you can see me after the service. One of the persistent themes in biblical religion, one of the persistent themes in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, one of the persistent themes in the reformation of the church is the need to not confuse God with the things that point us to God, not to confuse God with the things that bear witness to God, not to confuse God with the things that are symbols or signs or testimonies to God. We see this in the second commandment. You'll recall that the Ten Commandments begin with four instructions about our obligation toward God. Don't worship any other gods. Don't make idols or images. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain and keep the Sabbath day holy. We often think of the second commandment, which forbids the making of idols, as a restatement of the first commandment, which prohibits worshiping any gods other than Yahweh, as if an idol were always some god other than Yahweh. In fact, in our minds, we sometimes equate idol with false god. But what if we were to make an idol of the true God? Some scholars believe that is precisely what happened at Mount Sinai when Aaron made the golden calf. When Aaron presented to the Israelites this golden image, he said to them, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Maybe in some syncretistic way, the Israelites associated Yahweh with a cow, or perhaps it was understood that Yahweh rode on the back of a cow so that the calf is not an image of God, but the calf is an image of the God's means of transportation. Think for a moment of the angels on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Those angels are understood to be the footstool of God, so that God, in some sense, touches earth at the point of the two angels coming together at the top of the ark. The angels are not an image of God, but they are images of what is right next to God. It is possible that the golden calf made at Mount Sinai was an attempt to make an image of the one true God, or at least an image of something associated with the one true God, 
It is possible the golden calf was not an attempt to worship a different God. That actually is my view. So let's also be clear about images of false gods. There's no reason to think that ancient people believed that a statue of a god was the god itself. If I'm a Baal worshiper, I would have seen images of Baal in many places, and I would have known that none of those images is the god himself, but each of them is somehow a picture of the god. In the same way, when we see Santa at the mall, and we see Santa on a fire truck in the Hatboro Parade, we know that those are just images of the real Santa. So here's my point. The first commandment prohibits worshiping gods other than Yahweh. That's one issue. The second commandment prohibits making any image of God, even if that God is Yahweh himself. It's a separate issue. And that's why there are two separate commandments. The second commandment prohibits making images. The second commandment prohibition against making images is not a ban on worshiping other gods. That's the purpose of the first commandment. The second commandment is a ban on images of God, even images that are designed to remind us of the one true God. And that's because... There is always this danger of confusing God with the thing that points to God, or confusing God with the things that bear witness to God, or confusing God with the things that are signs or symbols or testimonies to God. During this Advent season, we read accounts of prophets pointing toward the coming Messiah, testifying that God is going to send a Savior the last of these Jewish prophets was John the Baptizer. The Gospel of Mark tells us that all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to John and were being baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. John the Baptizer was extremely famous in his day. In fact, the Jewish historian Josephus has more to say about John than about Jesus. John had become so famous, he was drawing such huge crowds that the Jewish religious establishment wanted to know what was going on. In our gospel reading this morning, a delegation of priests and Levites are sent by the Pharisees to interview John. They want to know who he is. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Anointed One? Are you the Christ? No, I'm not the Christ, he says. Are you Elijah, who will be the personal forerunner of the Messiah? No, I'm not Elijah, he says. Are you the prophet promised in Deuteronomy 18? No, I'm not the prophet, he says. So who are you? Well, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. John is quoting very freely from Isaiah chapter 40. At the time that that Isaiah prophecy was given, the Israelites were living in exile in Babylon. 
the word of the Lord came that God would rescue his people from this circumstance and that they were to prepare a highway for him to travel over, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The idea is, is that when the king travels, everybody works to make his journey as smooth as possible. Years ago when I was traveling with Sam Wood's brother in Morocco, we were staying in Marrakesh, which is a big city, and we got it into our heads to visit Warazats. We had heard stories about this small city that calls itself the gateway to the Sahara Desert. So one morning we went to the town square, which operates like an open-air bus station, and we found a van that was going to Warazats. It was about four hours away, um, and we figured we could get there uh, by lunchtime. And so up these twisting roads, we drive into the Atlas Mountains, and when we reach the mountain pass, which was quite high and quite cold, you'd be surprised how cold it can get in North Africa, we descended onto the other side, down into the heat of the Sahara Desert. And we were getting excited as we were approaching our goal, and as we got closer, it seemed like things were more spruced up than we had seen in Marrakesh. The road was in better condition. It looked like it had been swept. And there were Moroccan flags mounted on all of the telephone poles. We were thinking that this town must be something really special. And then we hit a traffic jam, which was odd because we were in the middle of nowhere. We crawled along for a while in a landscape like Death Valley and eventually came to a police roadblock only to discover that everyone was being turned back. No one could enter Warazats that day because the King of Morocco was coming. The road had been made straight in the desert for the coming of the King and we got thrown off the road because we weren't the King. Our reading this morning began, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him, through John. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Many times the prophets foretold that God would send this light into the world and John was the final prophet to bear witness about the light. John's purpose was to focus the attention of everyone, not on himself, but on the one true light, on Jesus Christ, as the proper object of their faith. Keep in mind that John was popular. John was famous. Huge crowds came out to see him. Religious leaders sent delegations interview him, there would have been a temptation to bask in all of that attention and adulation. There would have been a temptation to get rich. But John is always pointing away from himself. His preaching was a call to repentance. The kingdom of God is at hand. You need to repent. The sign of repentance that John uses is baptism or dunking under water. 
This is the kind of dunking that would have been required of a Gentile who was converted and had become a Jew. But of course, John is preaching to Jews. And it is as if he were saying the kingdom of God is coming. You Jews better get right with God now and finally become Jews. And the people felt convicted of their sins. And they confessed their sins and they were baptized. If John were preaching today, he would come to us Presbyterians and he would say, it's really nice that you're Presbyterians. God can make Presbyterians even out of these stones. How about repenting and finally becoming Christians? When John baptized Jesus, the Holy Spirit descended like a dove. Then Jesus was driven into the wilderness for 40 days. And when he returned from the wilderness, John saw him and he said to the crowd, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John bore witness to Jesus. John pointed to Jesus. At that time, John had a huge following. Jesus was still an unknown. But John says, he must increase and I must decrease. John was the sign, but Jesus was the signified. John was the testimony, but Jesus was the testified. Biblical religion has always pointed out that there is an inherent danger and the sign being confused with or outshining the thing that is signified. There is an inherent danger that the sign is so appealing that we forget about the thing that it's pointing to. There is an inherent danger that the details of the sign are confused with the character of the one who is indicated. That's why we have the second commandment which forbids the making of images for use in worship. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth because even if I use that image in my attempt to worship the one true God, there is this danger that I'll become fixated on the image or on the sign rather than on the one to whom the sign points, because even if I use that image to bring my mind to the one true God, there is a danger that I might try to trap the infinite God in the finite image of God. In some ways, it's a very serious demand that biblical religion places on us. All of the other religions of the world at that time had lots of images of their gods. Even if you know that the image is just an image, you might say that it helps you focus on your God, to worship your God. But Yahweh insists that there can be no images of Him. When the Protestant Reformation happened in the 15th century, one of the practices of the Roman Catholic Church that was called into question was the use of images in churches. For centuries, beautiful art had been created for the church to depict scenes from the Bible. All of us know the fresco Michelangelo painted in 1511 on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, showing the creation of Adam. Well, it shows a lot of things, but the creation of Adam, I think, is the image that we know best. 
God is floating in the air and he's surrounded by a group of chubby angels and he's extending his right hand toward Adam and Adam is resting on the ground and he reaches his left hand up toward God and at the center of the painting the outstretched index finger of Adam and of God almost touch as if a divine spark were about to jump across the gap and bring Adam fully to life. It's a beautiful painting. But it is precisely the sort of thing that many would take to be a violation of the second commandment. The image also raises questions in a multicultural context in a universal church which embraces people from every race and every tribe. God and Adam and the angels all are clearly Europeans. God is a white man with a flowing gray beard and very fair skin. Adam is younger and a little bit more ruddy, but he still is an ideal specimen of Italian manhood, which is not surprising since Michelangelo was an Italian and the Sistine Chapel was in Italy. But the function of these religious paintings was not only to make the space beautiful, it was also to teach simple people, many of whom could not read the Bible, but could read the pictures and have the stories impressed upon their minds. But what hidden lesson do we learn about God and about the progenitor of the human race if every image we see of them is white? This is not a case of us being made in the image of God. This is a case of us making God in our image. And we need to be careful. Maybe we need to be so careful that we don't make images of God at all. Of course, all of us are smart and we're sophisticated people. We know that Michelangelo's painting is just a visual allegory. It's a sign that points to some spiritual truth, but there is always the danger of the sign being confused for the thing signified. When the painting of Michelangelo works the way it should, it should point past itself to the biblical truth that God, who is transcendent and eternal and infinite, that he created us in some kind of loving touch. The problem with signs, when they become too attractive, is that we get stuck on the sign and we don't look past them. Such was John the Baptizer's concern. Don't look at me, he says. Look at the one whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. Don't be captivated by my preaching or by the crowds that are gathering to be baptized. Keep your eye on God and the coming kingdom. During the Protestant Reformation, the reformers were so concerned about the misuse of images that they actually whitewashed over paintings on the walls of churches. Our church here in Huntington Valley, with all of its stained glass, actually doesn't look like a reformed church. If you go to First Presbyterian Church in Princeton, which is genuinely reformed, you will see plain glass windows and walls painted white, as plain as can be. But paintings and statues and stained glass 
are not the only signs and images that we have in churches. Lots of things in church are loaded with meaning that you have to learn. There are the special words we use. There is the special music that we sing. There are special clothes that we wear. There are special gestures that we use. Churches are full of signs with special meanings. If you have been in church a long time, you are used to how things are done and you don't have to think about the signs or their meanings because you understand them all. But for a person coming to church for the first time or a person coming from a different church tradition, it can all be very hard to figure out. It can be very intimidating. What do you wear? What do you say when someone greets you in church? When do you stand up and when do you sit down? And what do you do when that collection plate is passed around? When do you say amen or thanks be to God? Can you raise your hand and ask a question during the sermon? How loud should I sing? And what is the deal with the different candles at Advent? Why is it that the pink one is the third one? And what about communion? Sometimes we come forward and we receive the elements by intinction. Sometimes the elements are brought to us as we sit in our pews. What does it all mean? In the early service, by the way, the bread and the cup, correct me if I'm wrong, the bread and the cup are distributed together. And then everybody swaps cups. What's that mean? I've never seen it before. Okay? I don't know. Is it a Brazilian thing? I don't know. Is it a Bruno thing? It's a Brazilian thing. Fellowship. It's a fellowship. Okay, it's, it's a wonderful, that's a, that's a symbol. That's a symbol that we are one in Christ and that we're sharing things. Okay, so even in communion, there are these symbols. Each of these actions and gestures and objects and words and sounds is loaded with meaning. They are all signs that are supposed to be pointing to something ineffable. And we need to be careful to not lose sight of what they're pointing to. I was going to wear my Geneva robe this morning. And then when I put my red jacket on, I thought, this is too pretty to cover up. <laughs> what does that mean? Why am I wearing my red jacket during Christmas? Why am I letting my beard grow out during Christmas, too? I'm going for that Santa Claus look. Okay? People ask me about this. I, mean, I will do things that don't mean anything, and they'll stop me after the service. Well, Pastor, why did you do this? I have no idea. Sometimes I wear my Geneva robe simply because I spilled the coffee on myself that day. It doesn't necessarily mean anything. When we do things right, and we don't always do things right, but when we do things right, every word that's spoken in this service and every song that is sung and every gesture that we make Every candle that is lit should direct our attention not to the word or to the song or to the candle or to the gesture, but should point us to Christ, who is the light of the world. John the baptizer, there at the Jordan River, 
was a kind of one-man carnival. It must have been a very wild scene. He dressed in animal skins. He ate insects and wild honey. People came from all over to hear him preach. His preaching was tough. And then those people were dumped into the dirty water of that river. All of this, however, was pointing past John toward the light of God who was coming into the world. This Christmas season, this time of year, which is so rich with symbols and signs and meanings and memories, this Christmas season will be a time when we are tempted to take our eyes off, off of Jesus. In our preparation for the holidays, we will be distracted. Sometimes we will be fixated on the symbols of the holiday, the gifts, the music, the feasting. Sometimes we will forget what all of these are pointing to. This, by the way, happens to pastors all of the time. I think it happens every Sunday morning. One of the occupational hazards of being in ministry, in the busyness of preparing for the Sunday service, we lose sight of what it's all about, which is why preachers have to keep preaching the same old gospel to themselves so they don't forget it either. So what I want to do in these final minutes is listen to the gospel again. And this is from John chapter 1. Very familiar words. And you love these words, by the way, because they're so pretty. Don't be seduced by how pretty they are. Listen to what they're saying. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The Word was in the beginning with God. All things were made through the Word. And without Him was not anything made that has been made. Do you think of Jesus as the creator of the planet? That's what the Bible affirms. In him, in the word, was life. And that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made God known. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, but the world didn't know him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is a season in which we need to receive Jesus, if you haven't already. This is a season in which we need to believe 
in Jesus as the Son of God, if you haven't already. This is a time to believe in His name. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the whole world is in a stir, getting ready to celebrate your birth. And I just pray that in some small way here, in this place, and in our lives, that we might know you as the light of the world, that we might know you as the source of life, of our life. Lord Jesus, may we receive you this day. May we believe in you this day. Make us children of God. This we pray in your name.